pray to us. I invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of Genesis, to chapter 1. And as some of you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, I want to exhort you, as we come into a new year that's as fine a time as any to start a new habit, or maybe renew an old habit, and I want to exhort you, make a habit of attending church twice on Sunday. And I say that to you as a person who didn't just take it up at the time when I became a minister. I wasn't raised with the habit. The church I grew up at didn't have anything like this. But when I was 21 years old, I began to attend at a Reformed church, and they had a morning and evening service. And I found very quickly that there was great wisdom in being with the people of God. It was, on the one hand, a second opportunity to worship the Lord, and he's certainly worthy of that, although we could take that to an extreme and say, well, then why don't we have seven services on the Lord's day? And he would still be worthy of that, and then just do it continuously, and that's called heaven, and we'll get there. But there's great wisdom in beginning and closing out the day with the people of God, and it also is an important way that you actually pour into the lives of others. By far, as a generality, the people who are most integrated into the life of the church do attend twice. They just see each other more. They know more of the opportunities. Also, it has to do with the fact that you receive more of the word of God over time. I've said before, and I will say many times, I'm sure, probably every year, say that children who are raised attending two services over the course of 18 years are exposed to a thousand more sermons than those who are not and a thousand more worship services, and a thousand more opportunities to be among believers. How else do you change the ratio of all the things influencing your children throughout a week? It's a wonderful way for that. Now this morning, you see that we're in Genesis, and maybe you haven't been here for a few weeks, you wonder where we're at. We come to the fourth in a series looking at what it means to be human. And we left off at looking at how human beings, what it means to be human, one of the things is that you have a unique origin. But this morning, we turn in the same section of Scripture in Genesis 1 to look at the fact that you also, as a human being, have a unique objective. That is, you have a purpose for living that is different than the rest of every other earthly creature. When you understand or reflect upon that purpose, it will change how you live. And so this morning, we're going to go into Genesis chapter 1. We'll see other places in the Bible as well, but we'll begin here at verse 24. Look with me, and let's give attention to the word of God. Genesis 1, 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's ask the Lord for his great blessing. 
Father in heaven, we appeal to you through the blood of Christ and through his ascension to your right hand that you would honor your son by giving us understanding of the holy word, that you would shape us more and more to bear his image. We ask, Father, that in our time here, you would protect us from error, lead us into truth, change us, for you are worthy. In his name we pray. Amen. It's fascinating the amount of variety that can exist among human beings, even among one family of human beings. When I think about, say, the vocations of some of my own family members, we're related, but we do very different things. My father was a civil engineer, so he designed how roads were going to be placed, what the angle was for the water to run off. And then my mom, she designed crafts and greeting cards, the kind of things you find in a gift store. She was very artistic in that way. And then I have siblings who are cooks, who work with food, and you think these are all very different. And they would see themselves as having different purposes. But what do all of those have in common? A cook, an engineer, uh, an artist, they are all various kinds of creators. Think about what a creator is. A creator is someone who imposes purpose upon objects, imposes purpose upon objects. A creator is someone who fashions things to fulfill a specific function. They take things and they change and they shape them. God can create out of nothing. We aren't like that. But like God, we take things and we shape them and we employ them for different purposes. We are creations. We've seen that in previous sermons. Being creations of God, that means that you have been fashioned according to a purpose. When you look at verse 26, it states our purpose in terms that are enigmatic, but also very profound. Again, verse 26, the Lord says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? And I ask you, children, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, to be made in his likeness? If you think often when we talk about a likeness, it's to be visibly similar to something else. Say a portrait of a person, it's a good likeness if you can recognize at least who you're looking at. But God is invisible. He is a spirit. Jesus says, no one has seen my father. His eternal essence doesn't cross physically with created things, such that we could ever see him with our eyes. What then does it mean that we are created in the image and the likeness of the Lord? Very simply, it means that we resemble him in our functions and in our calling, in our character and in our conduct, or at least that's what we're created for. Now, then it is a figure of speech in some way, and how do you get at that? I want to share with you one way to better understand what it means to be an image bearer of God. It's to look carefully at, to meditate upon the capacities and the functions that God has endowed you with. And how those things set you apart from others. When I say the capacities of functions and why this helps you understand, let me give you an example. Forbid, but imagine that you're on an airplane and the airplane crashes somewhere in the mountains in the wilderness. You survive, but strewn across the landscape is all kinds of wreckage. After you gather yourself emotionally, what do you begin to do? 
probably what you begin to do is take inventory of what else survived. First you see if there are people, and then you start looking at what stuff there is. And some of this stuff is going to be very familiar to you. You know exactly what it is and what it does, and you already have ideas of how maybe you're going to use it. You find some seat cushions, you find a jacket over here. You understand what those things are. But then you find other objects that are not familiar to you. And among those objects, you find something metallic with some plastic on it, kind of rectangular, and it has a button on the side with a familiar symbol representing power, and you think this is a device of some kind. It has the capacity to be turned on, and you press the button and a screen lights up. That's already good news to you. What's it going to be? And it has the capacity to display images on that screen, and the image that you first see is a circle, and arranged around the circle, you have the letters N, E, S, W, start thinking, I think that's north, east, south, west. This has the capacity to perhaps no location. Maybe the purpose of this device is for navigation and you start to feel hopeful. You reason from capacities and functions to gain a clearer sense of the purpose of something that you don't understand. Genesis is packed with information about the capacities that God blessed us with that help us to grasp what it means to bear his image. If he simply said that we are image bearers, we'd have very little idea about what we are. And that's why the Bible is very, very important for us because it describes humanity not just as we are after the fall when our capacities are broken and marred, but as we were. Now to be clear, we are not so destroyed that we are no longer human. We are marred, but it's like that device surviving the crash. You still bear the image of God, but it's greatly affected by the fall. But when you go into Genesis and you look before the fall especially, you grasp something of what it means, what you were called to. Why does this matter to be made as an image bearer of God? For this reason, as you understand this more deeply, it's going to do a couple of things for you. This isn't something that happens once. This happens over a lifetime as you reflect more and more deeply on what it is to be an image bearer. Some of you have been reflecting on it from very young. Some of you need to start reflecting on it more deeply, and you are over 60. And it can still shape your life. One thing that it does is it forms in you a deep sense of humility for having been made this way and not other ways. You didn't give yourself these capacities. We're not talking about skills that you gained. We're talking about things that are just part of you. They came with the package of being a human. And what a great benefit, what a great blessing, a privilege that God has made you a human and not something else. And maybe even in your current state you say, I wish I had all the capacities that people used to have or I had them better. Well, the hope in Christ is that we will put on the image completely. And so this drives us to humility, it drives us to a sense of responsibility as you understand what you exist for. You were made to make God known and to know him. That's what an imager is. An image bearer is somebody who knows God and makes him known in the world. Makes the invisible God, in some sense, visible for others. What responsibility does that give you when you know you will give an account to God for that? To what extent has your life made God manifest in the world? But then also this will drive you into the arms of Christ because we know that we fall short and that impels us then to lean upon the Holy Spirit. Renew me, change me. 
And so this shapes us in very different ways that are very important. As we look at this idea of our purpose, we're going to look at it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them again as we come to them. But basically, we're going to look first at our capacities, second at our calling, and then I'm going to conclude by just laying before you some of those same implications again. Our capacities, our calling, and some of the implications. Start, start then with me. Let's take inventory. What does it mean to come equipped as a human being? So much could be said. And we have to limit ourselves both for time and the things that Genesis focuses on. I want to lay before you three of our capacities that are definitive as human beings. This is part of what it means to be a human. And as you hear each of these things, think about maybe already some of the implications for life, what God expects of you. He may do this way and not another way. And he had a reason for that. He's the artist. He's the craftsman. And then think as well about just the privilege of being what we are. The first is the most marvelous, I believe. First capacity that we find in Genesis for human beings is consciousness. Consciousness. This is simply the ability to perceive ourselves and others personally. To be aware that you are aware. In some sense, other animals have a kind of consciousness, we're told, a certain amount of awareness of sensation, pain, feeling. Humans are by far gifted with the greatest form of consciousness that we encounter on Earth. And if you look in Genesis 3, just a little bit further, you'll see that after Adam falls, God asks him, how come you did it? Why did you eat of what was forbidden? And Adam says, I was afraid and I hid. He's reflective. Animals certainly can be afraid. I don't know any animal that has been able to communicate with me that it thinks about the fact that it was afraid at a different time in its life, that it reflects on its past experiences. Already that places human beings in rarefied territory. But there's something very distinct about human consciousness. God created human beings distinct from every other creature on earth, such that they can not only conceive of invisible, infinite persons, i.e. the Godhead, but that they have a desire, at least prior to the fall, to enter into a relationship with that God. Human beings have been described as homo religionis, the religious person, the praying person. We are unique in this sense that we're not just rationally able to think about the idea of God, but there is a longing to commune with him. Again, after the fall, unless people are changed by the Lord, they don't desire that in truth because he's holy and they don't want to have that holiness sever their freedom to live as they wish. But the capacity, the potential is astounding. What else in all the universe shows any kind of indication that it has that capacity? Now, there's another set of capacities that are subsumed under that. In order to be this conscious person, you have to have. And the next is this. God has endowed us with reason. We have reason. We are able, there's a whole complex of ideas there. Because when I say reason, I basically mean the, that you're able to think through things and think about how you're thinking through them. To adjust course in how you think. And implied in that, for instance, verse 16, look with me here. See what's implied. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Implied in that statement, Adam has the capacity to hold things in his memory, to recall them again, to think logically. If I do this, that is going to happen. He can think through abstract concepts. He can reason from physical death, the idea of death, to something he's never experienced, spiritual death. He's able to think complex thoughts. With that, too, comes, for instance, linguistic ability. No sooner does the word breathe life into Adam than Adam begins to speak words. Somebody may say, but other creatures also have some kind of communicative ability. That's true. But really, how comparable are they to the scope of the human ability to speak? The language ability of humans is like literally nothing else on earth. That hints at what God has made us for. On top of that, we have things like pattern recognition. When Adam looks at the animals, he sees none of them fit his case. And then he looks at Eve and he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Don't take these things for granted. To be human is amazing. The only reason it feels familiar is because you've been one for a while. It's an awesome thing to have these capacities that all these other creatures, I'm touching a pulpit that thinks nothing, the piano can make music. If we make it make music, to be human is awesome. But just as essential, in fact, in terms of our calling, in some ways more so, is that we have moral conscience. This is the third of these capacities that's central to Genesis 1. When I say moral conscience, I basically mean the ability to perceive and pass judgment on actions or ideas as right or wrong. You have some kind of sense there is a moral standard, and I can call it as either good or bad. After the fall, of course, that's greatly marred, and people have a much more difficult time determining what is right and what is wrong, both out of ignorance and out of selfishness. But the very fact that a needle exists on that compass tells us that its purpose was originally to point north. And the very fact that human beings have some sense that there is a transcendent law, even if they don't use that word, when I say a transcendent law, that some things are just wrong all the time. Doesn't matter how much human beings change over time. Doesn't matter what the culture does. It doesn't matter if a majority of people say something's fine. It's wrong. The only people who aren't acknowledging that, and lots of people are not acknowledging it at the moment, are either not experiencing personally the kinds of heinous evil that have existed historically and presently in some places. So they push from their mind the reality of things that would make them say, no, you cannot do that. Or they are sociopaths to be feared and avoided, to be sheltered and put away, because they genuinely do not think that anything is wrong. Suppress it all you want, but the scripture is very clear. It's implied in the command that Adam is given, and then it's made explicit in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, where it says, the requirements of God's law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse or excuse them. Every human being, fallen or not, has this basic capacity. This is extremely essential for getting at what we are. Again, 
when you think about that device that you find, you reason from the capacities to get some sense of the purpose. It has a display, it shows me the cardinal directions, it's probably for navigation. What kind of being, what purpose has God given to a creature that is personal, rational, and moral? What kind of life is he expecting of such creatures if he makes them able to form relationships, able to think coherent thoughts, able to make judgments about right and wrong? That all points towards what he has made you for. And I do want to be clear, this doesn't exhaust our capacities. Genesis gives us a sense that we also are aesthetic creatures. Eve looks at the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says that she beheld that it was beautiful to look at. Or the fact that Adam is creative, naming the animals. No one of these capacities is meant to be a reduction, and therefore we just say that's the image of God. Oh, our rational nature makes us image bearers. No, it's the complex of the whole as they come together. So we have to shift at this point and ask, what do these come together to form? What do these capacities say about your calling? And this brings us to our second main heading, to look at our calling in light of these capacities. Essentially, it's this. Your calling is to know and make God known in the world. Everything else about the particularities of your life has to fit into that rubric. Everything else has to fit into that one box. The box on the purpose of your life says, know God and make him known. And when I say know God, I don't just mean no facts about God. Know that God is there. I mean to know him more intimately than anyone else. If there's anyone whom you want to know more than you want to know God, that person is an idol in your life. They are there to be an image of God, giving you some sense of what it would be like to know the real thing. God made you to know him and to enjoy him forever and to make him known because nothing greater could be given to the world than a manifestation of the Lord. Verse 26, look with me again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. If you were to compare that with Ephesians 4, verse 24, it says there in the New Testament, put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You resemble God functionally when you become more and more righteous, when you become more and more holy, as that suffuses itself into every aspect of your life. Whether you are milking cows or whether you are a marketing person, whether you are a mother at home, all of those different arenas of life are opportunities for you to make God visible, as it were, to be his presence in the world. Genesis 1 and 2 records several of these functions in ways that we can kind of apply broadly. And it will be the aim of future sermons to look at these more specifically. Each one of them Far more could be said than the tiny bit that we're going to say now. But look at me at verse 26 as you see some of these functions here. The Lord says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion. This is one of our functions one of the ways that we fulfill our purpose to bear God's image in the world. That word dominion is somewhat sullied. It's somewhat tainted. 
in the minds of many people because they so associate it with just our experience of being fallen people in a fallen world. You hear dominion, a lot of people hear oppression. Oh, oppression, this is going to lead to just, you know, slash and burn, wreck it all, no regard for the future. The term used, however, is the exact same term used in Psalm 110 when it's describing the reign of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, where it says that he shall rule the nations. As believers, we cannot acknowledge that Jesus in any way is going to oppress the world, abuse the world, wreck the world. And because this function is given to Adam prior to the fall, you have to think that what God is calling human beings to in verse 26, let them have dominion over all these things, is to manifest in a human way essentially what God is according to his providence. To be stewards over all things, caretakers, creative, fruitful people, to exercise oversight righteously. Then look at verse 15 of chapter 2. You'll see this becomes clarified a little bit more. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to work it. So even this dominion, you cannot imagine that Adam's role would have been to say, sit on a throne and be fed grapes by a giraffe and do nothing. Let somebody else handle all the administration. God is a working God. He's a resting God. We have a Sabbath, but he's a working God. God delights in activity. He delights in means. If there's one, I mean, not one, there are many important categories in the Reformed Christian tradition, but one of them is that God, when he means to do something, he employs means. Here, we were created to maintain and improve the world through exertion, through effort. And therefore, work is not a byproduct of the fall. Toil is a byproduct of the fall. Toil is all of the influence of sinful attitudes, your own and others, all of the weakness that we undergo, the frustrations of the fall. But exertion is part of life as God intended it. Verse 15, he's not only to work it, but it says in verse 15, and to keep it. I want to be clear here. He doesn't mean keep like somebody may keep house. Just keep things tidy. This is much more akin to the old English word of thinking of a a big castle. You have the keep. And the keep is the most fortified place in the castle. Adam is to keep the garden. He is to preserve it from anything that would wrongfully damage it or defile it. To be a human is to be vested by God as his image bearer, the one who's bearing the image of a just God, a judge of all things, vested with authority to maintain moral order in the world. It's a common idea today to say, how can anybody possibly have a right to exercise retributive judgment? When people do things that are wrong, they can't help it at all. Some people hold that view. They can't help it. It's just biology at work, and they didn't ask out of that biology. And therefore, nobody should be punished. They should just be restrained. Look at me over at Genesis 9, verse 6. where it ties retributive justice to the image of God, where it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Often we think of that, I I believe, simplistically 
Well, because the person who was slain bore the image of God, therefore the killer should be punished. I'm not sure that's the intention of the text. It may be both and or rather that what it's saying here is because the one who inflicts the judgment bears the image of God, he has a right to do that. As image bearers of God who is just and brings judgment, people can be vested, as it says in Romans 13, with the authority to maintain order in the world. These are not exhaustive. Way more could be brought out in terms of the different functions that we carry out in the world. But basically, this is the awesome calling of a human being to take, and how do we put this? Say you have a piece of music that was originally written for one instrument, and then you transpose it for a much more simple instrument. It's not going to sound identical, but the song is going to be there. You've transposed, say, a song that was originally written for the piano, some incredible piece of music for the piano, and now you're going to play it on the penny whistle. The transposition is going to change some things, but the song is there. In an infinite way, God is the music that was original. He's personal. He's glorious. But we are to transpose into human life, culture, community, what that same song is, note for note, as best as we can. What an incredible calling! Your calling is not to make as much money as you can so you can live as comfortably as you can for a little while so you can die in peace and hope that the people who come after you get as good a deal as that. And yet that is how most people are currently operating. And I dare say most people functionally in the church are operating the exact same way. Give me safety. Give me security, give me comfort, and I'll thank God for as long as I live, and whatever he has for me beyond this life, I'm just grateful it's not hell, and I'll accept it. And you live far beneath what it is to be a truly human, glorious life. Becoming more godly does not mean becoming less human. It means becoming more the human God intended you to be. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 summarizes that calling when it says, God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And yet what a wreck I have made of that calling. And what a wreck we have made together in that calling. When you look around the world, do you really get the sense that this is what it's like if there were seven billion of the incarnate God walking among us? Is that the world we live in? Has that been your life to walk through the world like Christ himself is among us? And everyone who meets you, there is God in our midst. That's your calling. What a privilege, but we will give an account. And therefore you should be humbled and driven to a sense of, I am empty, I cannot change myself, and you can't. I'm not here to cheerlead you to just do something better out of your own nature. But to declare the promise in the gospel that not only did Christ come, that we could be forgiven, but to give you a destiny, you will bear that image. Hear carefully these words. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Believers have seen, it says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
In a way, we could say the entire purpose of human history was for there to be imagers on this earth, and we failed. And God has come among us historically in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he has borne his own image in our human flesh. And in doing that, we receive this hope. It says, 1 Corinthians 5.49, for everyone who's united with Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, of Adam who failed, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. Imagine a whole bunch of brothers who look just alike, visibly. It'd be hilarious. You know, a big family, 14 brothers. They're, you know, getting younger, but they all look just the same. In terms of character and conduct, that will be the family of Christ. He's the firstborn among many brothers who bear his image in their character and their conduct. We will be different in some respects, but this most essential respect, the love of God, the love of neighbor, will be uniform. If you are in Jesus Christ, get over, in a manner of speaking, your failures up to this point, and get on with striving to put on the new man. You've been forgiven, not so that you can wallow in a sense of shame, but so that you could put on Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 23 and 24 says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That involves activity. You put something on by how? By putting it on. You don't just wake up and say a spell and your clothes fly onto you. And yet that is how often we hope the Holy Spirit is going to dress us. That we don't have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. You look at the character of Christ and by faith in the working of his Holy Spirit who works from within rather than as it were dressing you from without. He works energy in you to do these things. 2 Corinthians 3.18 and then we'll close in prayer. Hear these words. Hear them with faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, meaning that we can look upon the glory of the Lord acceptably. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The invisible God, who called us to bear his presence visibly in the world, has now come into you and is changing you. 2023, may it be a year of transformation in your life. And I don't mean from one degree to the nth degree, but from one degree to another of glory. And it's possible because Christ is powerful. Let's ask him for that even now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we bless you for the high calling that you have given to us. We ask that you would please forgive us for how constantly we turn away from this calling, how we really lose our orientation and point the wrong direction. But you have given your Holy Spirit to us, and we ask that you would point us back in your way more and more, that you would give us great joy and anticipation that we shall be like Christ. We ask that in this life, in this year, you would grant 
such change as others would recognize. Even if we don't recognize, they would recognize the growth that is in us through your grace. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.